0: Three, Jesus, Gentle and Lowly. This awesome book, I'll be quoting from it a little bit, but we are going to give to you as an early Christmas gift you can look forward to. It's great short chapter, very powerful, on Jesus, the center of our faith. It's all about Jesus. So, leaf raking, just a, a few asides here. Leaf raking coming up, if you know someone who needs their yard raked inside or outside of the church, talk to me, we're looking for a few places to go. Uh, Ladies' breakfast, we're just going to make sure no men are on the premises if they're coming in their pajamas. Glad uh, Ashley pointed that out. So this morning, I'm talking about, we're going to start off talking about rejection. We live in a world of rejection. Sometimes rejection is a little bit humorous, if you think back, hopefully a little bit humorous. Maybe uh, you remember that time in the playground where you asked her out and she said no in second grade? Or perhaps you, uh, you didn't get chosen to lead the classroom down the hallway, the teacher chose somebody else, like Rocky Rockwell, I mean, if you're still suffering emotional pain from second grade when the prayer team will be up front at the end of the service, you pray for healing for that. Or perhaps you recently posted something on Facebook and you were so excited about that post and at the end of the day you had only two likes and one of those was your mom. (laughs) So, I mean, sitcoms, movies, they can be faced on the humorous side of rejection. But on the flip side, there could be rejections that that we all know are not so funny, but perhaps very painful. Uh, Perhaps it was a promotion you wanted, a job that you wanted, or someone that you were romantically interested in, or a friendship that fell apart, and sometimes even worse than that. I remember one time a job I had being in the break room and there were about a half dozen of us in there and guys who always stayed in the break room till the very end, um, till it was time to go back to work until a man walked in and usually very cheerful, but this morning his, his shoulders were slumped and very plainly to see that he had a dejected look on his face and he just sat down and just room grew quiet and he just said, my wife just said that she's leaving me. And he burst into tears and everyone except me scattered out of the room, just uh, went back to work early, which they would never do except there's an adult man crying there and uh, just was able to talk with him, pray with him a little bit. But uh, on the flip side, rejection can be amazingly devastating. Um, Here's a recent story, see if you recognize this face. Everyone know who, anyone know who that is? John Gruden. About a month ago, it came out that 10 years ago, in a separate investigation, some emails were uncovered where he made fun of a man of another race, made some disparaging remarks about the man's face, and then came out that he made some homophobic remarks and some other things that he's accused of. And so... John Gruden, I mean, beer commercials, funny guy, ESPN analyst, very popular, very well known, pretty pretty well known. Um, then the coach, last two or three years, I guess, of the Las Vegas Raiders. Then within a few days, such a hubbub um, that he resigned or was forced to resign. And the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, which he was the Super Bowl winning coach of, they had this thing, the Ring of Honor. And... They decided because of these remarks that his name was erased from the, the ring of honor. And what he said, I mean, it wasn't, he didn't stand before a judge. He didn't go before a jury. There was just this whole social media thing in, in society, in the newspapers. And I like sports, and I, I often read ESPN.com, and you know, in the days following this, when this story broke, there was like five articles and angry faces, and just condemning. I mean, not only his character, one guy saying, I always knew he was a worthless bum. I mean, criticizing his coaching, his drafting, just everything, it was just like a massive pile on. You would think he was like the worst guy uh, of, of the year. Like, and, uh, and just like that, popular one day, all these contracts with different companies representing them, and then, like he does not even exist. I even read a a quote where the man that he had made fun of, uh, he tried to call him, and the man was quoted as, yeah, John Gruden tried to call me, and there'll be a time when when we can talk and blah, 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 but just anger, indignation, in this man, deserves to be treated like he does not exist. And so why am I telling this story? Am I, am I, is this like a sermon illustration against cancel culture? No. This is, the point I want to make is that this is actually not all that unusual. That you and me, this is a world rejection that even though we live in the day of social media, we've all been a part of this, we've all seen it all our lives. Someone does something, whether it's wrong, whether it's real or imagined wrong, a sin, and that a people or a group of people decide that this person no longer exists, basically, and that they deserve to be treated as if they no longer exist. Whether it's in middle school or high school or in the, on the factory floor or whether the office room or whether within, within the family or within relationships or among employees, that we live in a world of rejection where this is what human beings are good at in all of mankind. That there's no place for redemption, rarely. How unusual it would be if the stories on ESPN.com had been, if if the man who had been the target of of, of John Gruden's uh, making fun of him had said, "Yeah, John Gruden and I, we talked, and it's all good, and you know we're going to work on this, and it's redemptive." But our society just seems right now just to revel in like we're victims, and this is terrible, and this person is terrible, and we're just gonna like. We're fully justified. We're righteous. We are right, totally righteous to act as if all the John Grudens, they don't even exist. And that is the right way for us to function as a country and as a community. But let's apply it to ourselves. That in miniature, we've all seen this happen. The people who, whether it's in the school hallways, like, they don't exist. Whether it's in walking down the the office hallway or in the break room, like, this person is violated, real or imagined, and they no longer exist. And we can thank the Lord that the Son of God, Jesus, is not like you and me. He's not like us. That in a world of rejection, that Jesus... We can always come to him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray just work in each one of our hearts. We just praise you that you're not like us and that though we live in a world of rejection, a a world that sometimes just revels in rejection, that you will never cast us out and that you alone matter in the end and that you love us and you're a faithful God. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to open up to John chapter 6, verse 37 in your Bible on your phone. Follow along. Welcome to those of you online as well. Glad you could join us. So John 6, 37. It's a very interesting Bible verse because it, it has two amazing com- components combined. You may or may not know there's two major Christian schools of thought or theology. One is predestination. And the other one is free will. To kind of abbreviate, predestination says that all mankind is so infected with sin that left to their own, not a single human being in the history of mankind would ever give their life to Jesus. They would never feel sorry about their sin to the point of coming to Jesus. And so God chose in his grace and mercy to avert the annihilation of the human race, that God chose that some would be saved and that he works in people's hearts to draw them by his irresistible grace to himself. Free will says that it's more in our ball court, it's more of of human beings that, hey, it's our choice. God doesn't force anyone to come to him, but that the ball is in our court that we choose, that God may be gracious, and we, he reveals himself, but that it's primarily free will up to us to choose him and to move toward God. So in the first part of this verse, take a look at John six thirty-seven, where it says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. This is predestination in its finest all, speaking about a a group or percentage of people, a, a portion of every nation, tribe, race, people for all time, all that the Father gives me that God has decided the death of my son, the blood of my son is not gonna be in vain. That I love people so much for God so loved the world that I'm gonna make sure, I'm gonna work in people's hearts, drawing them irresistibly to me I'm not gonna let the, the blood of my son Jesus be, be spilled in vain, and that mankind is so infected with sin that not a single person would ever come to Christ except the grace of God to cho- choose them, so that all the Father gives me will come. They're going to come. The theological word is the irresistible grace, that God will irresistibly just pull and draw and be patient with us and pull you toward Christ, Until you will come. Many times I've heard people say when they're 30 or 40 or 50 that when they finally give their life to Jesus that all my life I knew that God was after me. All my life I could look back and I just knew that that God was waiting for me, that he was watching over me until I came to him. Now look at the second part of the verse is all about free will. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out whoever, gates wide open, the doors wide open, it's everyone. Whoever means everyone, anytime, anywhere, any nation, you you raised in church or not, whatever, you you were an atheist, a Satanist, whatever, whoever, whoever comes. Every human being has a responsibility. Every human being must make the choice for their, themselves to say yes to God or no to God. Everyone is responsible. Everyone has a responsibility. Everyone has an opportunity. Whoever comes to me, anyone and everyone, who, regardless of who you are, what you've done, can come to me. And if they do, hey, the same condition, the same insurance rate applies to everybody. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No one who comes to me, anyone can be saved. So you have those two amazing doctrines combined in one verse. Coming back to the predestination, Isaiah 53, 6, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way. and The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Psalm 14.3 says this. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. In John 6.44, just seven verses later, it says, Jesus says this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so Jesus is even saying there, just that it's the Lord who's working. And so again, coming back to John six thirty seven, you see these just two amazing doctrines working together. I'm going to read to you from the book. I like the way that the author Dane Ortland, and you will get a copy of this book, kind of sums it up together and meshing these two doctrines. He says this: all, not most. Once the father sets his loving gaze on a wandering sinner, that sinner's rescue is certain. The father, our redemption is not a matter of a gracious son trying to calm down an uncontrollably angry father. The father himself ordains our deliverance. He takes the loving initiative. Will come. God's saving purpose for a sinner is never thwarted. He is never frustrated. He never runs out of resources. If the Father calls us, we will come to Christ. And then, whoever comes, yet we are not robots. While the Father is clearly the sovereign overseer of our redemption, we are not, we are not dragged kicking and screaming into Christ against our will. Divine grace is so radical that it reaches down and turns around our very desires. Our eyes are open. Christ becomes beautiful. We come to him. And anyone, and anyone is welcome. So just come, just come. Sometimes we're tempted to approach God like you're going on a first blind date. Do you ever approach God like you're applying for a job, trying out for a team? I've had so many people tell me through the years that I'm gonna come, but first I need to get some things right. I need to fix some things in my life. Where that is the exact opposite, that you and me, we come to Jesus just as we are. And he's the one who cleans us up. I love this quote where it says this, the only thing required to enjoy such love is to come to him, to ask him to take us in. He does not say, Who come, whoever comes to me with sufficient contrition, whoever comes to me feeling bad enough for their sin, whoever comes to me with redoubled efforts, Jesus simply says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So plainly know and believe that Jesus never says, I want you to feel really guilty and bad about yourself for a long time. Embrace the shame. Embrace your guilt. Walk, a down, walk around with your head down. Feel bad. And then, you know, after you felt guilty for a long time, then come to me. No. Jesus is never glorified by us wallowing in guilt or shame. He died so you could be free and have joy and not shame and guilt. Jesus never says, come on, try harder for a long time. Try really, really, really hard. Jesus says, come to me, come to me. Let me ask you another question. What does it look like, plainly, to to come to Jesus? What does that look like? It means just opening your Bible and starting to read there. doesn't matter if you're doing that for the first time. Open your Bible is coming to Jesus and just beginning to read because the Bible is God's word. It's God talking to you. Starting to pray to Jesus and just talk to him the way you talk to another person, not in some religious sounding language, but just talking to God is coming to him. Coming to a place where people have gathered together like this morning to worship, that's coming to him. When you've got a problem or a sin, not coming to him and saying, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna handle this on my own and not tell anyone. The Bible talks about just asking a brother or sister for help, that's coming to Jesus just as you are in honesty and openness and asking God to heal you. Confessing your sins, Lord forgive me That's just simply coming to him. It's not something super difficult. It's simply coming to God just as you are. No longer pretending, no longer putting up fronts, being honest with God, just coming to him. And that's your joy, that's your freedom, that's your growing in strength and power, just coming to him just as you are. And if you come to Jesus, it's not about being perfect, It's about if you come to him, he will never, ever cast you out. You are never, ever rejected. Coming back to, uh, if you want to put up John 6.37 again. So you see the word never down there at the very end, uh, never cast out. Now, the English doesn't capture it as well as what the Greek says. So in the Greek language, it's a, a double emphatic negative. So it would be bad English, but it would really say, I will never, ever, ever cast you out. It's strong, it's repetitious. It's like, duh, get the point. I will never, ever, ever cast you out. And the Bible seems to go, I mean, God knows that you and I as human beings we're tempted to think like a human being. We live in a world of rejection. And so we're always familiar. Rejection is always around us. And so we're always tempted to think that, ooh, God's like us, but he's not. So the Bible's full of God trying to convince you that he's never gonna reject you. I'll just pick four examples when I could have picked probably 30 or 40. Matthew twenty-eight 20. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. John 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so it's like God. Jesus says, I've got you in my fist. You're in my fist and there's no one and nothing that can pry open my hand and take you out. Here's uh, some verses you might want to uh, Come back to this week. I love these verses in Isaiah 43. It says this. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I've called you by name, you are mine. Just stay here just a moment. So it's like when you come to Jesus, he says, I know your name, I know your middle name, and you are mine. You're not random, you're personal. I know your name, you're mine. The next verse, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. And so he uses metaphors for life that we all know, like we're in a situation where we're in over our head, we're in such deep water, and we're in a fire. It's like there's a fire raging in our lives, but. Jesus says, but I've got you. I'm not going to cast you out. I'm going to be with you. You may go through flood and fire in your life, but I will never cast you out, and I'm with you in the flood and the fire. And the next one, I love this verse too, Isaiah 46.4. And let's, let's just all take a moment right now. Let's just say this together right now. Let's say this verse together. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. So again, God is always going to great lengths to say, I've got you, you're safe, I'm always gonna be with you, even to your old age and gray hairs, I'm gonna sustain you, I'm gonna carry you, and I'm gonna rescue you. It's a good word. So what, why then do we still struggle with like this latent sense that, yeah, but he might in the good book here that we're gonna give you as a gift and as in in God's word, it seems like there's two reasons why primarily we're tempted to think that he's gonna throw us over, kick us out. First is we continue to sin. We continue to stumble. We continue to trip up. We continue to do wrong, uh, mess up. We're never gonna be perfect. So one reason would be just our continued failings. And in this book, Dane Ortland, the author, he kinda, he has this great back and forth between, that he imagines a person having between Jesus and themselves, where a person comes to Jesus and, They have some some wrestling through it. And the person says to Jesus, no wait, Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. Jesus says, I know. And the person says, you know most of it, Jesus, sure. Certainly more than what others see. But there's perversity down inside me that is hidden from everyone. Jesus says, I know it all. Well, the thing is, it just isn't my past, it's my present too. Jesus says, I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of this sin anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help, Jesus says. The person says, but the burden is heavy. (laughs) And it's getting heavier all the time. Jesus, then let me carry it. The person, it's too much to bear. Jesus, not for me. The person, you don't get it, Jesus. My offenses aren't just toward other people. They're against you, Jesus. That I'm the one most suited to forgive them. The person, but the more of the ugliest ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you're going to get fed up with me, Jesus. Whoever comes to me. I will never, ever cast out. Our sin evokes a longing in Jesus toward you. Our our sin evokes his compassion toward you. In the world, we're all kind of think probably we might get the John Gruden treatment like you don't exist and you deserve to be treated as if you don't exist. But when you come to Jesus, he says, I will never cast you out. And therefore, it's, it's compassion that you get. What does a parent feel when their son or daughter gets poison ivy, pneumonia, COVID, the flu? Is a, does a father or mother, when, when your boy or girl gets sick, they get mad? What is the matter with you that you're so sick? Why are you sick again? Now, that would be bad, wouldn't it be? But a father or mother is, feels bad for their child and is upset over the sickness. In like manner, God is angry toward the sin, and that's why he died for it so you can be forgiven, so you can be ultimately healed from your sin, not toward you. Dana Ortland writes, Christ takes part with you against your sin. Romans 5.20 says this, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Ortland writes, the guilt and shame of those in Christ is ever outstripped by his abounding grace. When we feel as if our thoughts, words, and deeds are diminishing God's grace toward us, those sins and failures are in fact causing it, his grace to surge forward all the more. You and me are always tempted to think about God's grace, his forgiveness, like we do the gauge in our our truck or our car, our gas gauge. Okay, we start off the Christian life, and it's on F. It's on full. And then we make some mistakes, and it's on three-quarters full. And then, oh, we we really blew it, and now we're down to a quarter of a tank. We're down to an eighth of a tank. And then, oh, I missed church, or I did this wrong thing, or I looked at this thing I shouldn't have, and then it's it's on empty, and God has cast me out. Romans 5.20 says, but God's grace surges forward, it's greater than our sin. Where the strange truth about God is that when we sin, we look at the gas tank of grace and it's like, instead of, a, wait a second, it was at a half and now it's three quarters. Or if I thought I was down to a quarter, now it's, it's, it's seven eighths full. That God is such a God that His grace is greater than our sin. It's more about His grace demonstrated on the cross And that coming to him is, it's demonstrated, I believe that Christ died for my sins. You look toward the cross. Not that we continue to on purpose struggle, but it's about his grace, more than it is about your failings in your continued struggles. That glory to God, that he does not call you to live in shame. He died, that you can continually run to his grace. Failure in the Christian life only happens when you decide to live in guilt and shame, because you can always come home to him. You can always run to him. The second thing that makes us doubt and, th- and come to conclusion that he's gonna cast us out is when we encounter a certain season of great suffering, when everything seems to just hit the wall, when we, we finance our finances, our relationships, We are tempted to come to the conclusion that God has abandoned us. Ortland writes in this, he says, perhaps it isn't sins so much as sufferings that cause some of us to question the perseverance of the heart of Christ. As pain piles up, as numbness takes over, as the months go by, at some point the conclusion seems obvious. We have been cast out. Surely this is not what life would look like for one who has been buried in the heart of a gentle and lowly Savior, but Jesus says those who come to him are never cast out. John 16, says this. Jesus says, in the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Isaiah 53, 3 says this. Jesus was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of what? A man of what? And familiar with what? And I I love this verse. I personally have found a lot of comfort in this that unlike any other God, God is the true God, that the God of our faith, of Christianity, the living God, he's a man of suffering he's familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, meaning he knew rejection. He knew the full bitterness, the pain of living in a world of rejection, and we held him in low esteem. The Bible promises that life is going to be hard. Most people Perhaps all are going to suffer some season of life of great tragedy, pain, out of nowhere, unexpected calamity, setbacks, sorrow, suffering. And there's no way to avoid it. But it's not a sign that God has cast you out. Another author I I like, his name is Mike Mason. He wrote a book called The Gospel According to the Book of Job. And I think he has a, a really good... Uh, quote where he says this, listen carefully, he says, good religious people do not believe in luck. He kind of uses the concept of luck in a a spiritual way. He says, they believe in finding reasons for everything. They're always trying to figure out why they're having a bad day or why they are sick or why they are not more happy or prosperous. This type of thinking, which forever tries to appease and manipulate God, is a kind of paganism. By contrast, the mind that is able to live with unanswerable questions, letting the roulette ball spin at will, and yet still seeing the Lord's hand at work, this is the mind of true faith. This is the faith that can respond, whether in good luck or in bad, amen. To sum up, one approach to life is saying, okay, I'm gonna pray to receive Jesus. I'm gonna read the Bible. I'm gonna go to church every Sunday. I'm gonna serve at the church. I'm gonna do all these things. I'm gonna help a lady cross the street. I'm gonna rake leaves of my neighbor. And by doing all this, well, then God's going to make sure I get the promotion. Um, I'm not going to get COVID. Um, my, team, my favorite team, football team is going to win. I'm going to shoot a nice buck this year. And on and on and on. All good things are going to happen because, you know, I'm doing this. So God is obligated to do that. Where well, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's what paganism is all about. And that we can control God through some type of pattern. Now we do receive blessings and we, in our heart, we're forgiveness of sin. But the truth is that a lot of times God uses suffering to mature us, to grow us, to teach us, and to use that suffering to help other people. And even when we live with unanswerable calamity and tragedy and pain, that in the end, we will know. In the end, God will work it all together for good, even if we can't figure it out. We live in an age where somehow we think some way, whether it's COVID, we think we got all the information, we can figure everything out. If we just read the right article, go to the right website, find the right person, the right talking head, then oh, then we'll know. God knows. To God alone belongs limitless knowledge. And for us as as men and women, we walk by faith. And part of learning to have peace in life is that we're not going to have all the answers. We're going to keep our eyes on Jesus, come to him, and walk with him. And the mind of faith comes to peace that, yeah, I don't know why that certain thing happened to me, but I'm going to trust him that God is or will work it all for good. So our main verse for this whole series, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, "'Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.'" Come to him, even if your emotions are saying God has forsaken you, even if your circumstances, everything looks as though it sure looks like God has forsaken you, he has not. Even in your, your darkest hour where it seems like you're in over your head or the flames are all around you, he has promised and he is with you and he does have you in your suffering. So, in a world of rejection, Jesus will never cast you out. So, you can always run to Jesus. You can always run to Jesus. I read a story uh, several years ago out of a book about prodigals, and it's talking about a woman who lived near the coast of England, and she raised a daughter. Uh, suffer, suffered a lot of stuff, and her and her, da- her daughter was running away, and she got in the habit of leaving her front porch light on just so when her daughter was off in the night doing whatever, what a mother would rather not having her daughter do, but she would, when she would get close to home, she'd be able to see the front porch light on and know that mom's expecting me. So it's safe for me, I can, I can find my way home, I can get home, and I could, I could walk into my house. And so se- several years later, she eventually left for good and was off in the world doing whatever, and some of her neighbors and the town, visitors to the town would say, well, why does that lady have her, her house light? It's always, it's always on, even like in the dark of night. And so, and the lady was, well, in case just on the off chance that my daughter comes around and it's at nighttime, even years later, that she'll know, my daughter will know that it's still, she can still come home. I want my daughter to know if even after several years of not communicating that even if she comes home and she sees, she'll know as she gets close to my house that I'm expecting her and that it's safe for her to come home. She can always come home. We can always come home to Jesus. Anyone and everyone. You meet someone at work and, and they tell you that, oh, I've done so many bad things. No. You can tell them you can always come home to Jesus. Psalm 73 verses 23 to 26 say this, God says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. I'm continually with you. God's got me by the right hand. And our response in verse 25 to this good news is, whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That my flesh may fail, I'm human, but God is greater. He's the strength in my heart. It's more about him, less about us. Little illustration from the book. So, the author takes his two-year-old son to a, a zero-entry uh, wave pool. You know, and as their toes touch the water, the two-year-old boy, he grabs his, his, his daddy's hand, They start to go out, water gets a little deeper, and two-year-old grabs daddy's hand a little tighter. Get out a little deeper, waves start coming a little bit. Daddy grabs two-year-old son a little tighter, and as they keep going. Now I ask you, as they get a little deeper, whose grip matters? Whose grip Makes the difference. Oh, that two year old, if he just if that two year old just hangs on tightly, that's most important. Whoever comes to Jesus, I will never cast you out. What matters is not your ability to hang on to Jesus. It's his, it's his ability that matters to hang on to you. And you can have peace and joy, not that you let go, but that it matters most that he has you and not you, him. Just to express the emotion that God truly feels toward you. And this is the truth. A great passage from Hosea 11 it says this in verse seven, Hosea eleven seven, For my people are determined to desert me. They call me the most high, but they don't truly honor me. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Admar or demolish you like Zeboam? My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows And so God is talking like a dad here, like, my kids are, they want nothing to do with me, they just kind of give me lip service and say, yeah, we love you, Lord. And then they just, but they're bent on turning away and doing their own thing. But yet I love them so much, my heart's torn up. It's like a parent when your kid kind of rejects you, but you don't stop loving them. They're still your son or daughter. God the Father, so much more. And he's like, no way, I love them. And he says in verse nine, no, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel, for I am God and not a mere mortal. And again, he's saying, But wait, I know you live in a world of John Gruden's and and that whole world of rejection thing, but that's not me. I am God, and I'm not like human beings who live in a world of rejection. I am the holy one living among you. A lot of times we think of God as being holy as like, oh, he's scary. But holy meaning like he's holy in his love. He's holy, he's God and not man and he, he's not like us, and he's not going to reject us and leave us on the street. For I am the holy one living among you, and I will not come to destroy. You got to believe, how many of you in, your, in your, your home or your apartment, who do you got in the pictures on, on the wall, on your mantle, on your refrigerator? People you love, right? I mean, your, your kids, your family, your parents, people you love. And you just have to think that God in his, on his fireplace mantle, on his refrigerator, has a picture of you, truly. God says, I've called you by name. You're not some stranger who's you know, living, you're renting a place in God's and hopefully you get to stay there, but you're permanent. He's written you on his hand. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Two quick ap- applications as, as a wrap up this morning. Number one, always come to Jesus. He will never cast you out. Why not enjoy the peace and the joy, the security that is yours? If you've come to Jesus, you're in. You're in forever. He will never cast you out. That's that's God's gift to you forever and ever and ever. A hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, he's got you. He'll never kick you out. Rest in that. Reject shame. Just always come over and over and over to him. His grace, the gas gauge of his grace is greater. You cannot say I've sinned too much. You cannot say, but but there's my particular case, but there's me, the great, great sinner. No, you're just like everybody else. God's grace is greater than your sin. Number two, application for you to take with you this week. You be like Jesus. Isn't there enough rejection out there? Aren't you sick of, you know, the indignation, the self-righteousness of, it's like, who is going to be marched off next and treated their name erased and yeah let's all let's treat him they deserve to be treated like they don't exist such is not the way of a follower of jesus how much more clear can we live for jesus by as Jesus has not rejected me, as Jesus will never cast off me, there's always the light on, there's always a place for redemption, that, that rare story of, hey, we can have redemption. I mean, yeah, we might have to have some tough conversations, but as the people of Jesus, let's not keep going down that ugly, pointless death road of Let's, let's just erase his name, her name, take her name off the plaque as if and treat them. Yes, let's treat them like they, they never exist. At the lunch table, in the school hallway, in the classroom, on the, on the factory floor, let's do enough. Let, let's be like Christ, as Christ has done for us. Let's be for others. There's always a way back. I will never cast out. So in a moment, I'm gonna lead us in prayer. Pastor Josh is gonna lead us in communion this morning. Uh, The ushers are gonna come down. And if you've accepted Christ, if you've come to him, communion is a way of, of Jesus reminding us that I'll never cast you out. So let's stand right now. And we're gonna pray. And then we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper as we conclude with the closing song.